Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon for the low monthly price of $3, which gets you a weekly newsletter, or $5, which gets you our bonus episodes. Recent bonus episodes have included fun discussions of Midsummer and Hobbs and Shaw, and upcoming episodes include some talk about succession. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. Tasha Robinson is currently revisiting her days as a TV stuntman by visiting an old movie ranch. We hope to see her again soon. Last episode, we looked back at 1968 LA from the perspective of 1975 by discussing the Hal Ashby film Shampoo. This episode, we're looking at 1969 Hollywood as seen from the perspective of 2019 in a film made by someone who spent his childhood years in 60s L.A. The news that Quentin Tarantino was making a movie at least partly about the murder of Sharon Tate and her companions on August 8th, 1969, a film set to be released near the 50th anniversary of the murders, no less, inspired trepidation in some quarters. Was there a tasteful way to approach this story? And if so, was Quentin Tarantino the filmmaker to do it? Tarantino, after all, had spent the 21st century making variations on violent revenge movies, and his previous film was the especially grim The Hateful Eight. Nobody predicted the finished product would be so wistful and complex, if not totally free of the -the over-the-top violence that's one of Tarantino's signature touches. The film stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton, an aging star best known for his run on the Western Bounty Law, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, Rick Stuntman turned valet and minder, and Margot Robbie as Tate, Rick's neighbor. It's a film that feels a bit meandering until it becomes clear how its themes and narratives rhyme with one another, cohering into a funny but bittersweet look at a turning point in Hollywood and American history. We'll talk it over after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. (laughs) All the shooting. (laughs) I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? (laughs) Fried, you Nazi bastards! (laughs) Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me! So you still with Rick, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! 
embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, everyone. I have talked to Scott a little about this a little bit, but not Genevieve. But uh, so just going to throw it out there. What did you think? Genevieve? This is a film I had a, a lot of fun with in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, the word that kept coming to mind both during and after to describe this movie was indulgent. Obviously, on the part of Tarantino, this is a subject matter that he, you know, has a strong connection to. And, you know, as you said at the top there, you know, everyone was intrigued by what he would do with this. But also, like, watching this movie kind of felt like an indulgence. Like, it's such a rich experience being in this world for two hours and 40 minutes, you know, and it does have, you know, all these little digressions and diversions. And, you know, you're kind of zipping around this movie, and it feels like a treat while you're watching it. I have to admit, I came away from it feeling a little empty, like it didn't feel like it stuck to the ribs. Mm. Um, So I'm curious to hear about this, you know, complexity that that you speak of, because to me, it felt, like I said, just sort of indulgent, uh, you know, uh, an exciting place to to spend uh, two hours and 40 minutes. But I didn't feel like it had super strong ideas that it, it left me pondering afterwards. Um, I would echo everything you said, except the part of, uh, there was nothing to ponder <laughs> afterwards, uh, because it is a film that's at least given me something to react to. I guess the bar sure. has become so low for Hollywood movies during the summer that it's just so interesting to see a movie that is this rich, at least in terms of world building, uh, but then also has a lot to talk about. And people are continuing to talk about this. And I know there's that people get upset about the discourse in some of the places that it goes and it does go to ugly places. I don't think there's anyone on any part of the spectrum of liking or disliking this film that isn't annoyed by their counterparts to some extent, but I think there's been a lot to chew over. But I think first and foremost, I had the re- a reaction similar to Genevieve, which is that it felt so great to spend time in this world. Mm-hmm. It was, and it's a world that Tarantino obviously loves and loves to draw out with as much a detail as he can. Uh, one of the things that he's really learned to do as a filmmaker, and this almost, I think it was Inglorious Bastards is when he does it, maybe the best, is just to kind of let scenes be as long as they need to be. Let's, you know, just like, it's okay. It's okay that this movie can have some sprawl. He's confident enough that he can hold your attention through sequences that are way, way longer than you'd get in another movie from the visiting the, the ranch to all the stuff on the set of Bounty Law, you know, these are things that he has the patience to kind of draw out and it's great. And I think that, you know, to get back to this idea of world building, I I think it's a term that gets thrown around a lot because it's a strategy that we've seen happen on television and film and things like Marvel or Game of Thrones where worlds expand and more characters are added, mythology is added and all this other stuff. But here, it's just, he just straight up builds something that you can just it's like a sandbox, you know, it's like a sandbox video game or something. It's like, it feels like you're just engulfed in in this thing. It's not about like collecting whatever stones you need to destroy the universe. It's about really just figuring out what it is about this period that you want to express or, or what, that you find interesting and then just evoking it as strongly as possible. And I think Tarantino's just at the peak of his powers uh, throughout this movie. I agree with you. But what I think is interesting about that, especially coming off our conversation of shampoo, is that, you know, for as much time as it spends, you know, kind of exploring this world, it doesn't feel like a, you know, particularly unhurried or lackadaisical film, you know, like it's almost jittery, you know, to a certain extent, the way it like it does spend a lot of time in scenes, but those scenes aren't 
ever stagnant. You know, like there's a lot of just sort of movement and energy to this film, I feel, from beginning to end in a way that I think maybe heightens some of the emotion that there is in this movie. I don't know that it's a super emotional film, but it does kind of give you that excitement throughout. I did not feel this movie's length remotely, you know, the way that I might have if it, you know, was a, a more sort of relaxed, yeah. you know, lots, lots of floating cameras and spending lots of time, you know, dwelling on this beautiful world that's been created. Like if it moves throughout this world constantly, even if it's spending a lot of time in certain places. Yeah, I guess maybe I was thinking that it feels comfortable just like abandoning a character for a long yeah. time. <laughs> just like, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to yeah. follow, yeah. I'm going to follow Cliff as he goes to this ranch. And has this experience. And, uh, you know, you're going to follow him from the point where he picks up a hitchhiker and drives her to this place. And then as he makes his way through and he talks to the current occupant and he asks about how he's being treated and what's actually going on here. And it's just like, it's a very long sequence. But it it is purposeful. There's so much tension in it. It is purposeful in that he is... In each of these segments, and, th- and this was true of Inglorious Bastards too, they're long, but he is carefully building tension within them and carefully building up the stakes. I mean, that all th- my favorite bit in the whole film is when Rick Dalton is filming Lancer, which it seems like in the telling of the film, this is the last time he really gets to be an actor. You know, because at this point, at that point, he's ready to move on to spaghetti westerns where his voice is going to be dubbed and it's in what he does uh as an actor is not going to be as important but here um it's such a master class you know mm-hmm. and, and and there's so much at stake for him his career and then his just basic dignity as an artist is being uh is on the line and uh and he's kind of in the in you really get a sense from Tarantino that could kind of go either way that he really could just kind of lose it. He's drinking a lot. He's not as sharp as he used to be, but he, he delivers it um, when it counts. And it's, and when he does, it's so exciting. Yeah. I mean, I think so much to what I end up chewing over in this film has to do with Rick Dalton and has to do like what happens when you're very good at something, but the industry you're in ages you out of it. And <laughs> what's up, Keith? No, no, I did not. Did not, did not mean to. Yeah, uh, we're gonna. I, I, I felt it, buddy. <laughs> I, well, that's not what I was referring to, but but uh, uh, but what you know what 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 it maybe it was what I was referring to without knowing it, but uh, you know what happens when you know you are good at doing something and the industry just does not support that anymore. You get because I mean whether or not Rick Dalton is just a cheesy Western star. It's kind of left an open question until that scene in Lancer, uh, as you pointed out. And, mm-hmm. and you realize this is really good. And, and Sharon Tate is someone who was always on the verge of becoming a big star and never got a chance to become a big star. And you can see her her talents being underserved by the material she's given in that wonderful scene where she goes to watch yeah. the wreck. Uh, Th- that's the scene of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's so I, good. I, I, I love that's that. Pretty, that's pretty much up there too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and like, you know, you can tell the movie's not good, but she is good in it. And what she's concerned about is that, you know, she entertains the people because it actually is, you know, at heart what she got in to do this for. I mean, you know, besides all the complications and all the, um, you know, all, all the aggravations that come from Hollywood, all the ups and downs of stardom, you know, I think she and Rick kind of both came to this from a very pure place and, and they, they wanted to act. He wanted to be a cowboy. She wanted to be uh, a movie star. And, uh, you know, it's, and it's really about the moment when 
in very different ways. It's about the moment when they can't do that anymore. Her because of murder and him because uh, the, his time in Hollywood has passed. And I think there's such poignancy to that. And there's such poignancy to the ending as well. I mean, I think the phrase, I think A.O. Scott used in his review saying like, like, what if the 60s never ended? And that's sort of the question it's asking. It's like, not if like the 60s themselves never ended, but this sort of moment um, that it captures and what if what was sweet about it was somehow like drawn out in some ways. I think there's there's a lot of the strategy in this movie though is the more you take into it, I think the more bittersweet it is because I mean we we know what happened with Tate obviously. It's just filled with people who died young or met scandal or some combination of the two. I mean, Polanski and Steve McQueen, James Stacy, the star of uh, Lancer. Uh, these are and Bruce Lee. These are all people who did not have a lot of happiness in their future in many ways. And I I think to see them at this moment before all that turned, uh, gives it an extra, uh, extra depth. I think just, I think there's actually a lot of going on this movie and a lot to, lot to turn over. Um, it's just not necessarily all there on the surface. Yes. But then you, you have to take into account what this movie does at the end, which is it, takes away that tragedy you know that that is hanging over this you know it takes it away um, in the context it, of the movie but it, we know better you know and i think that's that that's exa- where yeah. that's kind of what gives it the sort of sweetness that doesn't quite feel right maybe i keep coming back to the fact that this movie is called once upon a time in hollywood and you know tarantino uses once upon a time to sort of signify his alternate histories because it was used in inglorious bastards too as i recall at the beginning but, you know, you get your fairy tale ending at the end. And there's some fairy tale archetypes at play here. Obviously, Tate is the princess, you know, and there's some sort of prince and knight characterization happening with Rick and Cliff as well. I think because it ends on a note of happily ever after and thereby removes not just the tragedy of the Tate murders, but, you know, everything that happened with Roman Polanski, you know, or or like it kind of freezes in amber this moment and invites you to imagine that this world could like continue on, you know, and and Rick gets his happy ending too, you know, like everyone. So it, it just gets tied up in that way. And like, I understand that by playing that against what we know of history it creates a sort of tension and causes you to, to dwell on what really happened in, in a bittersweet way. Mm-hmm. It just didn't do that for me. Mm-hmm. Like I came out of this movie feeling like, well, you know, that was a happy ending. Everything turned out the way it should have turned out. Oh, no, you that's know? the whole and, thing and, to me. And ter- oh, that, that's, that's why I find that ending yeah. incredibly moving, especially the second time I saw this movie. Mm-hmm. I just, I just like, that was... Maybe I just need to see it a second yeah. time, but... What stood out for me about the ending, the very end, is this visually I sort of interpreted those gates up to Sharon Tate's place to be like the sort of the pearly gates. I mean, you know, we do have that... It is Cielo Drive. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, just, it's It feels like... Because again, is is he was saying like we do know better that we do get this this fantasy that things happen differently and that Sharon Tate was able to live and have her child and continue on in her career but we know better and that is a kind of a visual acknowledgement of that of the of her voice coming through the intercom which is this kind of you know unnatural and sort of maybe celestial and then these gates opening up and it just it has it feels like such a kind of a heavenly image that we're being left with of her and of that situation I mean, I just, see I, I i interpreted that as like the princess in the tower yeah and inviting the heroic prince up even though the the dashing knight is the one who did most of the heroic <laughs> though, though you know um, he didn't have the flamethrower <laughs> that's true he did not have the flamethrower um, yeah it's uh 
It's interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, it's obviously him. It's a return to the well. If you want to be, um, you know, hard on him for it, if it's him, him doing the end of Inglorious Bastards again, where he gets to just de- destroy all the terrible people who did the terrible yeah. things. Um, but, um, but I was a little moved by it, and I think, I think the movie just kind of earns it, you know, uh, th- throughout, and particularly with its depiction of Sharon Tate, which is pretty gutsy, but ultimately so moving, just to give her that time to have the experience that she has you know going to this theater and taking a picture and and uh you know sitting there among the people and watching yourself on screen and hearing the laughter and just having you can see just what a blissful thing this is i mean just it's such a sweet thing to for him to do you know and and you don't (laughs) sweetness is not not something that that you get from tarantino all that often uh i mean I, this film i think you know we, we did of course pair it with shampoo but if you pair it with another film in in his filmography it would have probably have to be jackie brown because it, it kind of has that kind of warmth to it um and affinity for its characters um that's a little different than his affinity for characters and other other films of his it's certainly different from you know the likes of hateful aid and and um you know django and chain and those types of films I want to be clear, like, I don't have a problem with the end of, of this movie. Like, I and I do, I did like this movie well, a lot. maybe the end of this movie just... has a problem with you, Genevieve. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just kind of explaining what I came away from this movie feeling was not, you know, this bittersweet feeling that you guys had. It was more just sort of a... A pleasantness, but uh, you know, like I said, maybe maybe I just need to see it again. No, or you're not maybe wrong. I, just, I mean, I can I can enjoy it the way that I enjoyed yeah, it. You're, you know, <laughs> you're not wrong. I, I've, I've definitely heard that reaction from others as well. I think the end is very divisive, yeah. and and uh, uh, I think it's it's you know one thing I, I've I've really loved about this film is that so many people have taken away so many different things from it, and no one seems to be responding to it quite the same way. And and I, I think that's yeah uh, yeah. But what else should we? What else should well, we? There's well, lots of chew over here. What well, else should I mean, we talk about? One thing that's kind of interesting about this discussion, though, of the ending is that we're talking about the very end of the film, but we're not talking about what precedes it, which is an unbelievably violent scene mm-hmm. in the that <laughs> that yeah. the, 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 at the end of a film that is notably not that not violent, certainly not by Tarantino standards. So so it is a really shocking uh, and and you know some have complained quite gratuitous climactic scene no and angry too it, it feels like there's actually a lot of anger in, in the staging of that almost you know pretty much as, as much anger as in, in the staging of the end of inglorious bastards yeah i mean i maybe just because it was a tarantino film and like i i don't know the violence didn't take me by surprise i was bracing for it you know i was like there's no way we get out of this movie about <laughs> the the tate murders without something grisly happening you know, and I'm kind of famously not as uh, attuned to violence as, as others on this podcast. And, you know, I may have watched some of that scene from, you know, behind my hands, but I didn't really have a problem with it. Maybe as I'm like thinking about it and considering it a little more, you know, I'm, I'm developing some problems with it as, as, as I sit here, because um, I've kind of tuned out of a lot of the discourse of this movie just because I didn't want it to affect this discussion too much and also it's kind of exhausting yeah <laughs> but um i think i, I liked that scene <laughs> kind of a lot <laughs> like yeah. it was it was violence is fun which i know is a problem for for some people and sometimes it's a problem for me but it wasn't here because i think the execution of that scene there was a lot of humor in it 
you know, it was it almost like kind of went up to a horror comedy uh, place, which is, you know, generally I can process gore and violence a little better in that context. Um, and also there was a, a really good dog involved, mm-hmm. you know, so that always makes it makes it go down a, a little better. Well, well let me so. play devil's advocate here because yeah. I, I think people have picked up on and I want to be really clear here that I, 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 I I'm not going to defend the Manson family. Uh, here, uh, but 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 I think you could potentially pick up on a certain hostility toward the counterculture and towards hippies in this film, even beyond this scene, or maybe this scene being the apotheosis of that. Um, uh, am I is is that a crazy thought? I mean, or I mean, did you feel like you know you can see these men as you know of an older type, you know, in, yeah. in being lionized as being an older, yeah. older type, and also I'm not I'm not that's not even a judgment call i mean i think that the film has kind of a you know conservative notions that that doesn't really make it a bad film it just it has conservative notions so does this film have is it a legit thing to point about out about this film that it feels hostile towards uh the counterculture and towards hippies and and seems to more favor you know the types of people that rick and cliff represent I mean, you kind of have to read the Manson family as stand-ins for all of the counterculture, and, and whereas Manson was, and I don't think they are. Right. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Playboy party, you know, like which is just so wonderful and, and decadent, you know, and feels like a, a really maybe not quite positive portrayal of the counterculture, but a, a more you know, certainly not an antagonistic one, you know. Um, There's a sweet hippie um, uh, woman that Sharon take gives a ride to mm-hmm. the the yeah. hippie that he buys that Cliff buys the funny cigarette from seems like a perfectly uh, uh, nice <laughs> like drug Margaret dealing. Quali <laughs> too, right? Mar- yeah, she's. I mean, the thing is, you, you got to see Manson as as not Manson is in something like an, an invasive parasite on the counterculture. You know, taking taking yeah. advantage of what was going on and, and people like her character. Yeah, I mean, I know there's some. Uh, maybe you can speak to this, Genevieve, because I didn't listen to them all, or maybe Keith did too. But I mm-hmm. guess, I guess, um, Karina Longworth's podcast on the Manson family really got into how, how horribly, you know, sort of abused and manipulated the women were, mm-hmm. and whether, and uh, mm-hmm. maybe there's some some thought to the film not being. Um, terribly sensitive to that aspect of the hippie women yeah but you still are dealing with people who committed really vicious acts of murder you know i mean the sympathy can only go up to a point i think yeah i mean especially with a movie this sprawling like if you want to create empathy for every single character we meet you know it's just going to be a slaw you you know and and i i think i don't agree that the the manson characters the manson adjacent characters are a a stand-in for all of the counterculture i i reject that premise i do acknowledge that you know it is not exploring the manson cult in a particularly deep way but i don't think that's what this movie is is about the manson family is like an evil that was encroaching on what this movie is about which is hollywood in this moment and the people that populated it it's about Sharon Tate. It's not about the Manson family. There's a pretty good movie that came out earlier this year called called uh, Charlie Says, directed by Mary Heron and written by Guinevere Turner, Turner, who did who did you know the team behind American Psycho, and it ends up kind of spinning its wheels. But but I think it's an interesting film, and, and it, it is um, told from the perspective of a social worker uh, played by Merritt Weaver, who has to counsel and kind of essentially deprogram. Um, or attempt to uh, some of the the women in the Manson Manson cult, and it 
gets into the complexity of, of, of how deeply brainwashed these people were without actually forgiving them in any way. Um, and I think that might be, you know, that's a, that's a movie that has room for that discussion. I don't think this movie does. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, again, I'm mostly playing devil's advocate here because mm-hmm. I, I, I think both of your points are, are, are good. And I think, I think there are a lot of counter arguments to the notion that, that Tarantino is expressing hostility towards uh, the counterculture and toward, towards hippies. I mean, there are plenty of uh, minor characters and even majorish characters who kind of um, undermine that argument. Um, just before we move on, I wanted to ping off uh, Keith's recommendation and also offer another sort of uh, semi-fictionalized take on the the women of the, the Manson family, and that's Emma Klein's The Girls, which mm. is a novel from 2016, I believe. Um, and uh, Manson himself doesn't appear in it. Or there's not really a you know a Manson analog uh, that that appears in it. It's very much about. It's sort of like a psychological thriller that gets at the core of this cult that that enabled it. So if that's what you're looking for, that Once Upon a Time didn't give you, maybe check out the girls if you haven't already. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a movie can't do everything, but um, but this does plenty. Right, and it also does some of the things that Shampoo does as well, as we'll talk about when we make some connections after the break. Break job. <laughs> Sam Wanamaker. Hey, Sam, <laughs> sorry about the wet hand. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm used to it with you. <laughs> I just want you to know I'm the one who cast you, and I could not be more delighted that you're doing this. Well, well, thank you, Sam. I I appreciate it. That's a good part. Yeah, it is. Have you met Jim Stacy, the series lead? Uh, not yet. No, no. Well, you guys are going to be dynamite together. Mm, mm. Well, it sounds exciting. Yeah, lightning in a bottle. (laughs) Now, Rick, about your hair. Oh, what about my hair? I want to go with a different hairstyle. What? Something more hippie-ish. You, you, well, you, 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 you want him to look like a hippie? Well, think less hippie, more <laughs> Hell's Angel. Rum, rum. Say, uh, Get me say, to you, well, Sam. Sam, uh, if you got me covered up in all this, uh, this junk, uh, how's the audience gonna know it's me? I hope they don't. Mm. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have. In common, well, you know, we, we started off, you know, obviously the big topic here is, is Hollywood in Los Angeles and and the depictions of both and also the depictions of how they engage with the counterculture throughout the day, actually more similar than different in, in that in that respect, where it's they're both a lot of what's happening in the counterculture is outside the bubble that the main characters live in, but it's mm-hmm. starting to peak in, it's starting to, f- to find its way in. I mean, it just just the way Rick's asked to play the bad guy as, as like a Dennis Hopper type, sort of hippie-ish biker type, you know, which is something that would, he would not have been asked to do uh, back on Bounty Law. And in Shampoo, you know, they end up at the, it's, it's a Hollywood party with money that they end up with, but the, there's enough of the sort of the new hippie types invited to make it interesting or to, to dominate it, I guess, ultimately. Or, you know, I kind of see those people as not so much genuinely hippie, genuine hippies as, as hipsters who are, are putting on the dress of the day. So that's that's my take on... on, on in of, shampoo, you think? In the, shampoo. The, the hippie party or the, you think is kind of... Well, I mean, look at where it's held. I mean, yeah, you're right. I, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's a yeah. sprawling mansion. It's not like some sort of uh, rented house you know in the valley or whatever yeah that's a good point 
And I think I saw Sam Adams make this point on Twitter, too. Like, this is Los Angeles, 1969. It's not San Francisco. The city has a different relationship with the counterculture. You know, like, it is still an industry town. And there is still, as we uh, briefly touched on in Shampoo, there is still a, you know, a conservative element at play. There's a lot of money, you know, flying around in, in a way that is very sort of antithetical to a lot of what the the counterculture was, was invested in, you know, so there is a bit of a uneasy relationship between the, the counterculture and what is really, in, you know, the foundation of Hollywood. So, you know, obviously, there, there are hippies, there are people living that lifestyle in Los Angeles, and these characters, you know, encounter them in, in various contexts, but it's a very Hollywood version of the, of the counterculture. And I don't mean that in the way the movie portrays them. I mean, you know, the, the counterculture as it existed in Hollywood, versus, you know, San Francisco or any other place in the country, like there is this tension there that is wrapped up in what LA and Hollywood specifically is most known for. And it's compromised in a way that it might not be elsewhere either because of money and because of, and because of Hollywood that, mm-hmm. that you can't have as pure an expression. I mean, they they just kind of take uh, somebody like George can take, yeah. take the whole free love idea and run with it for his own, sure <laughs> for his own I- indulgence, but right. he could give fuck all about politics. Like he, there's no, yeah. there's no recognition on his part. I mean, he doesn't care that he's going to this, this Nixon party. He doesn't care that Nixon is getting election. I mean, does, does that register with him at all? No, that this is happening. Uh, no, I don't think if you ask him to difference between Nixon and Humphrey, he wouldn't be able to tell you. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, and I, I should think that, that any, any good counterculture person would be able to make that be pretty clear about that. In both films, it's sort of the, the counterculture divorced from any real sense of idealism. You know, like I find it interesting that in both films we get these, you know, sexy mansion parties, at the, you know, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is at the actual Playboy Mansion and the, the one in Shampoo could just as easily be at the Playboy Mansion. You know, so there's there's the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll, but there's not, you know, the anti-consumerism and the political engagement that was a part of the counterculture and other parts of it, you know. And again, I'm not saying that that part that that aspect of the counterculture wasn't present in L.A., but it's not present in these movies version of L.A., well, one thing I will say that I really appreciated about both of these movies is how they approach history from the kind of the, the side door from a different angle. I mean, you have Rick Dalton living on Cielo Drive, which we know is going to be, if you know the Manson story, you know some stuff's going down. And then and then you have this election eve and in the election. And I, I think one of the strengths of Shampoo is how Ashby works that into the movie as it more organically than I think I've ever seen, you know, a movie do. I mean, where it's a really important part of the film and it's in the background, but it's in the background in a way that, that, that it would be, that it makes complete sense where, where they're at in any particular time. And then they're at this party and yet it's still kind of in the background. And it's just, it's almost like the sucker punch, right? Uh, you know, as you were saying, it's the, it's like the ground that's moving under George's feet, but he doesn't realize it. And, and uh, Ashby just directs that way of just like, he doesn't. He's not cognizant of any of the stuff that's going on, but it does ultimately become important to him and, and to the country because things are about to take a, a turn, and he's going to be left behind, and other people are going to be left behind because uh, the culture is going to change radically. So um, I like that. I, li- I like that approach to history of, of not taking it straight on 
uh, as Tarantino has done in other, you know, is in 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 Glorious Bastards and in Jago and Chain of of of, of battling the, these huge um, evil forces directly. Uh, he's just kind of he's exploring it from a different angle, and it just it makes a big difference in the tone of the film and the subtlety of the film, and you know that, I think that's something that both films have in common that uh, are strengths. So yeah, it, it, the election is always in the background in Shampoo, and you know the radio is often on in there, and the, and once upon a time in Hollywood, the radio is always on everywhere. There's advertising, so everyone's listening to the same station, listening to the same songs, and hearing the same ads. And I think it's such an you know curious and important element of that film. Almost, I mean, you could almost even say it's inspired by Shampoo. The way that it kind of just lets uh, the media, the omnipresent media, roll around and, and behind all these characters. But you really do get a sense that there is it's town. It's it's a shared culture that everyone is uh, participating in. We should definitely kind of get into that sense of omnipresent media, as you as you put it, in, in both of these films, and especially the music. But before we get too far away from like how they engage with history, I just also want to uh, point out that they do both turn on, you know, a single day in history and, and sort of pinpoint a single day as a turning point. And it's a, it's a different day in both cases, you know, we're separated by a few months, you know, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it takes place over a longer period of time, but it does build to this single date that funnily enough is the same date that we are recording this exactly 50 years yeah. after uh, the, the Sharon Tate murders. <laughs> so little little background trivia for you there. But we kind of did this pairing uh, based on the idea of the shared sense of an era ending in these films. And I think that it's interesting that they both kind of pinpoint a single historical event as sort of the crux of that turning point. And they're very close in history but they are not the same turning point yeah it is kind of funny to watch these two films that are both kind of end of the era movies but, but they've, they've they have pinpointed the, a different date and a, a different event as being where that end actually is shampoo is operating on like a level of national change you know like the it's a national election and one spot time in hollywood is very specific to you know, something that, that shook Hollywood in particular and, you know, the, the culture of, of that town. Obviously, it shook the whole country, but it had a, a specific connection to that town in a way that the uh, presidential election and shampoo did I mean, not. You take your pick of stuff that happened in uh, mm-hmm. 69 that, 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 uh, <laughs> that shook, the rest, shook the rest of the country. I've heard it's a, it's a kind of a important yeah, year. Was, Every baby boomer in the world has told me yeah, so. Yeah, I, I, believe, I believe it was the summer that Brian Adams got his first real six string, right? That's true. He bought the five and died. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. That was, that was the really important stuff that happened in summer of 69. But speaking of... Uh, speaking yes, let's, of let's transition. This is a perfect transition uh, uh, from Brian Adams to the music of both of these films, which is such an important part. It's such a great part of mm-hmm. both films i i was stunned mm-hmm. watching shampoo again just how expensive such a soundtrack would be today i mean we go to this um mm-hmm. hippie party and, and hear two beatles songs from sergeant peppers right and we hear because they're playing the whole album like yeah. I, I, I like that. I think that that's something that you know we maybe don't think about from the perspective of twenty nineteen. But like they probably put on the whole album during that party, you know, and we just happen to catch <laughs> yeah. those two songs. Well, what is but... the priciest record that we could play at this party, <laughs> uh, rights wise? Uh, and then you got that really awesome Buffalo Springfield 
song, Mr. Soul, and and you've got the Beach Boy song that sort of bookends it. And, Hendrix, and, you get the Monkees. Oh, I mean, they're they're really man, like big, obvious six, sounds of the '60s songs. But I think you know they hadn't quite become sounds of the '60s cliches at this point either. Do you two? It feels mm-hmm. it feels fresher for some reason. Yeah, I mean, well, you never hear the beat. You don't hear the beat that often. It, no, you don't. I mean, really. when, do we, when do you? What else do you ever hear? Sergeant Pepper's in a movie. When you're Warren Beatty, you can license the Beatles songs. But yeah, you can just you just have to seduce, uh, you know, a Beatle. I guess. I guess. <laughs> do something. Uh, bad, bad. Uh, you know, the, they they all they, they can talk about their hair. All their beautiful. That's they, true. They all have beautiful hair. But yeah, that's a key thing, and it reminded me so much. Did you ever catch up with the Olivier Assayas film Cold Water? No, I need to see that. Uh, it's really good. I think it's I think it's up on the Criterion Channel now because it was unavailable forever. But there's a, like it really builds to this party sequence that is just just loaded soundtrack wise, and and it, they, they both parties kind of have a similar feel, though though that one has more of a punk kind of end end of the end of the world vibe to it than uh than the one in shampoo but in any case i think it's i think it i think it, uh the soundtrack definitely is a, a big plus in well, uh, shampoo i think the point of contrast too is those are, those are the film when you think of the music of the 60s you would think of all or most of those songs that you're mentioning and in once upon, once upon a time in hollywood it's not the obvious tracks i mean there's you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders are all over this. And Paul, Paul Revere and the Raiders is, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like the commercial version of, of cool 60s rock even then and, and has is not all that fondly remembered now. But, you know, I think it, the film makes a pretty good argument that Paul Revere and the Raiders had some really good songs. I mean, there's some, there's some good stuff. But you also get... You get I mean, doesn't a character actually argue that? Yes, at you one do. Point? Yeah, and, and and you get you do you get Jose Feliciano's version of California Dreamin'. You get Buffy St. Marie's version of the Circle Game, and and you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, he's a crate digger. He he likes to go deep. You know, give, give you the deep cuts, and I think you get a lot of uh, a lot of that as well. But it, and it's certainly Tarantino being a um, you know, some a music curator, but also kind of gives you a sense of not everything ends up played forever on oldies radio some stuff is ephemeral i mean some songs mm. don't endure mm-hmm. in that way and it's true of the films in it as well i mean i mean all these movies that, that, you, that you go past all these marquees of movies that were actually released in 1969 and like some of them have stuck around uh, yeah, you, like you know, kind of it's like oh the eiger sanction yeah well no, it's a little early yeah. for that it's not, oh, it's not it, i thought the eiger sanction was on that marquee was no on marquee. i think it was, it was something else but but um romeo and juliet stands out the zinnemann Ro- romeo no, and juliet no, no, but also like you know, three in the attic is is there a heavily advertised yeah, film, and yeah. and um, I mean, you know, you know, the Wrecking Crew for that matter, or or CC. What what is the uh, Joe Namath movie? CC and oh, the, so, oh, right, right, CC and Company. CC and Company. Mm-hmm. It's like who who remembers this film? And and you know, I think <laughs> there is kind of a it kind of gets at the, the the you know, it's a town that produces these big expensive uh, products that involve a lot of talent and a lot of promotion and a lot of hype and then they kind of just turn into vapor after a while depending on what they are yeah but, so many but, of but them I think do. I think we should kind of expect though films of any era to be like that of of, of all uh, you know the things that are playing right now and that, that have big advertising campaigns and are opening in 2000 theaters are you telling me that 50 years from now people aren't still going to be talking about Men in Black International <laughs> or no I mean or you go smaller <laughs> than that it's like Brightburn that's an mm, interesting film I think people sure. kinda, it might get a little bit of a tiny cult reputation but it was, but it'll, that'll be who knows? I mean, if someone go, makes makes a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about now, mm. 
that that maybe that would be like, huh? That's a film that existed, and I, I I was grateful for that, and grateful for a soundtrack that was so not obvious. Because my God, I mean, how many movies set in this era, they just play the same ten songs or something, don't they? Mm-hmm. I think another connection that we can't leave this discussion without noting, even though I think we have talked around it uh, a fair bit in both these discussions, is the the role of women and the female characters in these films because in both films we are dealing with for the most part women characters within their relationships to men in some in some way or another and shampoo explicitly um and and once upon a time in hollywood i you know we we definitely get more of a sense of sharon tate you know as, as a person but it's she's still kind of functioning as a symbol there was a bit of a hubbub around uh, Roby's uh, lines or lack thereof in this film when the when the film debuted at Cannes and Tarantino kind of made some crappy comment and it, it turned into a bit of a furor. But, you know, I, I think I think we're all in agreement that this film actually does pretty well by Roby and and by Tate, even if she doesn't have a whole lot of lines per se we do spend time with that character and in that wonderful movie theater scene we do get a sense of her and her hopes and dreams and her need for validation and you know maybe some less uh you know idealistic parts of her character too and i spoke in the first half about you know how i i liked how distinctive those three women in george's life are from each other and they're even though they all kind of have quote-unquote, the same relationship with him, they're all different uh, at at the same time. So, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I don't really know where I want to go with this connection, but it just feels like something we can't discuss these two films together and and not talk about. Well, I mean, I think with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's just making a choice, and the choice is a very bold choice to limit Sharon Tate's dialogue, I mean, to make her almost like a... You know, Monsieur Hulot or something like a silent mm-hmm. figure um, whose um, presence and whose uh, expressions are going to deliver all that the film wants to get from that character rather than counting the lines as, t- as Time magazine did, uh, much to the ridicule of the entire <laughs> internet. Um, but I think that, yeah, I, I th- the women in Shampoo sort of grow on you a little bit. I mean, just like the movie itself. I mean, it really, it, it feels, it's just, it, it's so patient and um, you do get to know them and uh, Lee Grant won an Oscar for the film, I think, deservedly. It's yeah. a wonderful character and, um, yeah, just, I, you know, it, it's it's an interesting movie because I think it does acknowledge uh, George's blind spots with regard uh, to women, with regard to his, his understanding of, of, of women and that, you know, all they talk about is their misgivings about men or something. I can't remember what the actual line is. Yeah. And that's pretty much, you know, the only thing he seems to know about them. And the film itself doesn't seem to have a huge amount of insight, but at least it has the ability to to distinguish between the three, as you say, and give a lot over to the actors who all give mm-hmm. such terrific performances. I mean, every single one, Lee Grant and and, and Goldie Hawn and, and Julie Christie and, and Carrie Fisher in the role that she has. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, it, it also walks this really interesting tightrope of like, showing the pressure these women uh like are causing for him you know or, or this pressure they're putting on him but they're not portrayed as like nags or or antagonistic to him you know like the the reason they are upsetting to him is 
through fault of his own. You know, they're they're not being shrews or, you know, like he's playing them, you know, I guess maybe Felicia a little bit is, you know, portrayed as humorously needy in a way that the the other two are not. Um, but it's, I guess, redeemed by the performance there. And in that case, you know, that the, the character has a, you know, you can tell that there's uh, something unfulfilled in, in her life, you know, she's seeking fulfillment through through this relationship. And I think that's brought across more in the performance um, than anything else. But, you know, yeah, there's yeah, almost, there's kind of a Mrs. Robinson esque quality to that character. Yeah. Isn't there? Yeah, there is. But I mean, I feel like fundamentally all their gripes are legitimate. Their complaints about George are, are all right. completely, <laughs> completely justified. Oh, but does that define who they are? <laughs> their complaints? Maybe a little. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but in the context of, of the movie and, and George being a, a bit of a, a doofus, I think it, it works. And then, you know, on, on the flip side of it, of course, we have George is this emblem of male beauty that is, you know, not faded. I mean, he's certainly, you know, still a, a very attractive man, but he has sort of his the glory around him has, has faded, you know, and that is certainly something we have in Once Upon a Time as well. Um, both the prime male <laughs> specimen and the the faded glory uh you know on undercutting that to a certain extent so uh what 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 did you guys think about that element of these films? Well, I mean, Brad Pitt looks pretty good on that roof. I think as people have said. <laughs> oh my God, Brad! <laughs> yeah, you know, how long has it been since Thelma? I, I really just didn't want to end this conversation how, how long, without talking about. How long about did it, Brad Pitt. has it been since he got basically the same reaction in Thelma and Louise? Thelma and Louise was like ninety one. Ninety one, so twenty. That's uh, yeah. twenty eight years no. at this point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, twenty. Sorry, that's. <laughs> He's not. We're not. This is the next uh, mathematics show. Yeah. <laughs> so he, anyway, he he doesn't look like somebody that age is supposed to look. That's not. That's not. Or that's not right. or maybe he looks exactly how someone that age is supposed to look, and we're all falling short. <laughs> I would say. <laughs> well, I think we've always fallen short. <laughs> But, you know, for as beautiful as Cliff is, you know, and obviously a- attractive to the women in this film as seen in the the Margaret Qualley character, you know, I-, I and him and him, I and her back, like he is also kind of a loser. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of his uh, his trailer, mm-hmm. which, you know, his sad trailer and his sad macaroni dinner <laughs> and, you know, his, his his very good dog that is, his, you know, his only companion other, other than Rick, you know, and he does have a pretty sad existence that you don't really process when you look at him because he just is like, yeah, obviously he's gorgeous. He, everything's everything's great for him. But is it sad um, for him, or, ha- then, or is it sad for him, or just sad for us? Because he seems okay with his existence. He seems he seems fine. Um, and it, yeah, it's interesting. the The Cliff character is really interesting to me in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because he's he's like the cool guy enigma to Rick Dalton's like sort of blubbering comic relief you know it's it's interesting the the dynamic between those two but they are both men on the the downturn of their life you know in in different ways but connected ways and there is a a base sadness to both of them because of that that is uh, creates an interesting tension with their their good looks and in rick's case his 
money success whatever whatever you want to call it you know because it's it just highlights that it, it is fleeting you know maybe not if you're brad pitt maybe maybe it will never <laughs> it will never flee or warren Beatty for that for that matter yeah. but you know in the in the context of these characters i think we're supposed to believe that this is the end of an era yeah. for them i mean were. they're still beautiful but they faded in other ways uh you know and of course cliff lives behind a, a drive-in which is also something else that's mm-hmm. also going to, to go away as well so uh he's living a quite a marginal existence i live within 20 miles of two drive-ins here so i don't know what you're talking about it's true michigan's the dream but we don't that, all live in paradise that, that particular uh drive-in is was a real drive-in it's no longer no longer there uh, well Speaking of things that, that have to end, I think I think this discussion is probably <laughs> winding down. But I mean, we have enjoyed talking about both these films. So please send us some feedback. Currently, Shampoo is available on DVD and Blu-ray via the Criterion Collection. It's currently streaming for free on Crackle and rentable via the usual digital rental sites. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in theaters now. We saw it in 70 millimeters. Mm-hmm. Scott and I did at the Music Box here. And uh, that's the best way to see it. There's only five theaters in the country playing it in 70 millimeter. Yeah, and it's in 35 at the Logan here in Chicago yeah. as well. So you can, ca- you can kind of catch it in 35 in a lot of places too, which is yeah. kind of cool. It's the way to see it. I, I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, if, if, if you can. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes it will put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I I saw this movie uh, back in True False, and it's been through theaters, but it just became available for purchase and for rental on streaming services. And I think music fans uh, absolutely have to check it out, and that's the film Amazing Grace. Uh, this is a, you know, back in 1972, uh, Aretha Franklin decided to record a gospel album at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in Los Angeles, and Warner Brothers sent a promising young filmmaker by the name of Sidney Pollack to capture the event on film. Uh, Pollock w- had done a, had done some stuff before. He did he had done uh, they shoot horses, don't they? So he had a tiny, a little bit of experience, but he did not. But he was un- undone by a huge rookie mistake, which is he failed to mark the synchronization of image and sound with a clapperboard, uh, resulting in twenty hours of unusable footage and a total abandonment of the project. Um, it was something that was taken up later by a producer named Alan Elliott, uh, who had who revived it and synchronized it. But then it got hung up by Aretha Franklin herself and various legal issues and likeness, likeness issues, etc. Elliot finally showed the film to her estate and got the approval. And now we have this incredible piece of history um, where um, you know, Franklin, who, who entered into this church as already an R&B icon, but the way this whole thing plays out is what really is striking to you is is both her presence, but also her humility in this sort of house of of worship and in the songs that she's singing and in her engagement with these songs that meant so much to her throughout her life. Now, all those feelings are are both um, deeply felt throughout the film, certainly by the congregation and by by us as viewers. But there's also kind of this modicum, this this bit of professionalism, I guess, on Aretha's part. I mean, she you really get a, a, a strong sense of her as an artist, uh, somebody who's who's aware that this is going to be that this is going to be recorded 
that is just a, a total pro <laughs> too on top of everything so she's feeling the songs but she's also you know n- nailing it and being being there for, for for the moment and getting down good tracks um so lots of great stuff wonderful uh, you know the music is is wonderful i mean this is the top selling gospel album of all time i think it remains so and um and you can see some fun things like uh like um mick jagger showing up on night two just kind of wandering around in the back <laughs> um so uh, a lot, lot of interesting things there and some co- interesting context with regard to, to watts and the riots and that sort of thing too so um uh, it's a treat you know and and will i think you know anybody who who watches it will um be uh you know if they weren't already astonished by aretha franklin's skills as a singer and a performer they will be wowed by this so uh, amazing grace well, in the lead up to the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, the Sony Movie Channel, which I don't know if, how many people get or not, but they, they do some good stuff on there. Uh, they programmed some films uh, chosen by Tarantino um, as influences or just sort of carrying on sort of the similar vibe to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he talked about them in interview segments with, uh, with Kim Morgan, the film journalist. And one of them was a film I had not seen uh, before, which I really enjoyed, called Model Shop uh, by Jacques Demy, the great uh, French filmmaker of my favorite film of all time, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, um, and it, which we covered on the show. And it is a departure for him where it's, it's him doing a story set in, in 60s L.A., and it kind of we've talked about before how like when, when a director from another country comes to America, you kind of get sort of a different perspective on America. And it's very much that the things that catch his eye about Los Angeles are not necessarily the things that other people would, would latch on to. The main character lives in sort of this beachside appointment next to an oil derrick. And you can see an oil derrick um, in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. I don't know if that's a direct point of inspiration, but maybe. Um, the, the film stars uh, Gary Lockwood of 2001 a Space Odyssey fame as someone with an architecture, architecture degree living in Los Angeles who doesn't really know what to do with his life. He's kind of drifting around. He's lost his job. He owes money. He spent what money he has on a very fancy car that's, that, that the repo people are going to come for. And he has a tortured relationship with his parents but um, that you know, we, we plays out via telephone that involved him telling him that he's supposed to call, come, you know, come back and report for the draft. And over the course of one day, he kind of falls for a mysterious uh, woman from another country named Lola, uh, played by Anouk Ami, uh, which is your first cue to uh, figure out that this is actually connected to an earlier film that Ami did called Lola, which is connected in its own way to Umbrellas of Cherbourg and Bay of Angels. You don't have to know any of that, but it's still kind of interesting. Uh, she's a French woman who's also in Los Angeles, and they kind of just hang out, embark on a relationship, and really not a lot happens. But to paraphrase something that, that Tarantino, you know, put put in the interview. It's like in the interview segment is like you get to the end of the movie and you realize a lot has happened. He's kind of come to some very big decisions about his life, and it kind of has that sort of like day in the life. Let's just follow this person around Los Angeles quality that you'll find a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. And uh, I found it quite enjoyable to check out and a really interesting time capsule. In 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 addition to being um, a curious departure from 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 a great director, um, Genevieve, how about you? Have you seen anything? good lately yes i've seen something very good i saw uh lulu wang's the farewell which is a feature adaptation of a story that wang first shared on a i believe 2016 episode of this american life 
uh, about a Chinese family's elaborate attempt to keep their matriarch from learning about her own terminal cancer diagnosis. Uh, I feel like this was a pretty well-remembered episode of This American Life, so the premise may sound familiar to you, uh, but the film, which Wang wrote and directed, is a very different and very worthwhile experience. Uh, It stars Aquafina, recently of Crazy Rich Asians fame, in a very different role as Billy, uh, the 30-something daughter of Chinese parents who moved to America when she was a young child, and who maintains a close relationship with her nai-nai, aka her paternal grandmother, who still lives in China. Billy is resistant to the family's intention to keep Nanai in the dark about her uh, cancer diagnosis, even though everyone assures her this is the norm in Chinese culture. Uh, And so Billy goes to China alongside the rest of her family for a rushed wedding for her cousin that Nanai believes is legit, but everyone else knows is a last chance to spend time with her. Uh, It's a really hooky premise, but the resulting story is a really thoughtful and nuanced comedic family drama that's carried by fantastic performances and some really interesting filmmaking choices. Um, It's a very talky film, one that jumps freely between subtitled Mandarin and English, uh, but there's no sense that you're, you know, watching a filmed play here. Uh, Wang frames these conversations in very interesting and evocative ways and establishes such a distinctive sense of place that really under scores the sort of culture clash elements that are going on in the story. Despite the fatalistic premise, this is a frequently a very joyful movie, thanks in large part to the actress who plays Nai Nai, uh, whose name I am certainly going to butcher here, but is Zhao Shuzhen. I think, and she is an utter delight. Um, But there's also, of course, a lot of sorrow mixed in as well. And the way that Wang and her actors are able to strike that balance is really impressive and definitely worth seeking out. It came out in mid-July. I had some trouble tracking it down here in suburban Michigan, but uh, it eventually popped up on the art house screen in my local multiplex. So hopefully you can still find it playing where you are at as well, because I would definitely recommend seeing it in a theater if you can. Uh, The Farewell. Have either of you seen this one I yet? have. I, think, and I went with you. It's terrific. I think it's going to turn up on a lot of uh, top 10 lists at the end of the year. And we'll be, we'll be talking about this movie some yeah. some more. I, I loved um, just the tone of it. I loved I loved how Aquafina's character was so connected, both connected to this heritage, but also distanced from it. Mm-hmm. Like she'd spent time. Um, yeah. There, but but you know her memories didn't always match up with what the with the place she actually encountered. Um, but I also love just sort of the, the real sweetness of her relationship to her grandmother. It's just this genuine, um, mm-hmm. uncomplicated um, familial affection, and in the sense of what would be lost when this woman was gone, it was really strong throughout the movie. I, I, yeah, it's 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 first rate. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it again and seeing more from the director. Yeah, I mean, it's top of my list of things to see that I have not seen, yeah. but so I'll, I'll see it soon. In fact, my, my wife and my 11-year-old daughter have seen it, but not me. Yeah, yeah. that's thing, and it's also, yeah, that's thing to point out. It is definitely <laughs> a, a, as I, I recommend it to somebody else, it's definitely a film you could take, you can take your mom too. It's, it's, uh, it's PG. It's, yeah, it's. I saw it with my mom. Yeah. She yeah, loved it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Genevieve's got a cool mom though. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out August 27th and September 3rd. Scott, what's coming up next? Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert's documentary American Factory was the best film I saw at True False earlier this year, and it was picked up by Netflix after Sundance, where it won a prize for its direction. The film takes us inside the Fuyao factory in Dayton, Ohio, to witness a fascinating culture clash. Fuyao is a Chinese company that specializes in windshield glass. And it's taken over a shuttered GM plant. 
A lot of former GM workers are hired for these new jobs, but they soon learn that China and the United States have very different philosophies when it comes to work, and issues are raised about salaries, workplace safety, and unionization. The tension between the company and its employees called to mind another classic labor documentary, Barbara Koppel's Harlan County, USA. Koppel's film follows the conflict between Kentucky coal miners and their bosses, and the violence that breaks out as the strike drags on for more than a year. We'll talk about what these two films say about the state of labor relations in the 20th and 21st century. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Shampoo, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone else these days? Genevieve. I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter sometimes, occasionally tweeting at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Scott? You don't tweet that much. Um, she's smart she's smarter than I, us. i'm a power tweeter however um, you can find me at twitter at, at scott underscore tobias where i mostly yell at politicians yeah. and you can find me uh my work at uh new york times washington post npr vulture lots of vulture television this these days with succession and oh, Mind yeah. hunter uh good shows and uh, uh and i'm also the editor-in-chief of oscilloscope's musings blog uh we have some really good stuff up there now and uh I, you know something to come that i think is going to be really exciting but i can't really say anything about it now mm. um yeah how about that uh keith oh i'm a freelance writer and editor you can find me on twitter at kfips 3000 you can find my writing at oh vulture and slate and the verge and polygon and decider and tv guide and Oh, just all kinds of places. Oh, wow, Mel, Mel Magazine. <laughs> TV yeah. Guide. TV Guide. That's right. so you can write about TV there. I wrote about, uh, I just wrote about Succession, uh, which, uh, you know, will be a subject of a bonus episode for, for our Patreon subscribers. Mm. Um, Sounds like a worthwhile thing to invest in. Yeah, sure. Tasha Robinson, who's not with us this week, is the film and TV editor at The Verge. You can find her on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at, at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at Patreon.com slash NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners to keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. This is dedicated to what I love. This is dedicated to what I love.